We have a great show for you today, but first I want to say thank you to Motorola Solutions, gold sponsor on the Inclusive Product Management Summit happening here in Seattle, May 12th and May 13th. We are grateful that Motorola Solutions wants to build a more inclusive future, and I hope you too will join us in building a more inclusive future by coming to the Inclusive Product Management Summit, May 12th and May 13th. Registration link is in the podcast description. You won't want to miss learning about the future of product management and how inclusion in product management can not only build a better world that we all want to see, but also drive success for your career and for your business. See you all May 12th, May 13th here in Seattle. Again, registration link is in the description. Join us. Product managers give 100% of themselves to their customers. But who's there for the PM? The Product Management Center at the University of Washington. It's a global hub for knowledge, community, and impact. I'm Jeff Schulman, founding director of the Product Management Center and your host on this show, How to Succeed in Product Management. Welcome, everybody. My name is Jeff Schulman, and I'm the founding director of the Product Management Center at the University of Washington. And we're trying to build a more diverse, inclusive, and skilled product management community. And part of that is bringing access to some of the best and brightest in product management. And today, we are all in for a very special treat, as we have Tatiana here, who has been a chief, like head, like the boss of product at multiple companies. And we're going to talk about becoming product-led. So, Tatiana, I kind of messed, I could go into all the wonderful things about you, but I'd love to just hear in your own words, uh, what are some of the accomplishments that you're most proud of as we gear into why people should listen to you talking about becoming a product-led organization? Sure. So the way that I describe myself and, and what I've done is that I'm a transformational product executive. So, you know, I go into companies and, and organizations when they need to either completely redesign and transform and rethink their product or when they need to build a whole new product. So at Salesforce and, and Nextdoor, I was brought in when the product, the core, the primary product experiences needed to be completely overhauled. And, and Nextdoor also kind of, you know, need the ads platform needed to, like a complete rethink, redesign, re, you know, everything from the ground up, you know, in terms of the very base technology level, all the way up to the UI and the um, user experience level, as well as just sort of the transformation of the Nextdoor product as a whole and its future uh, in order to prepare it for the IPO. At Salesforce, I led the sort of lightning experience redesign, so the reinvention of the Salesforce product, again, from the ground up. And then at other companies, I come in when, I, when they need to build a new product. So most recently, I just left uh, Pendo a few months ago, where I was brought in by the CEO and the board to build a new future of work platform to take Pendo, you know, to becoming a multi-product company and addressing a new market, which is sort of the workplace experience market, because of course, most of our work happens in software. So <laughs> all of the tools that we as product managers use to figure out how are people using our software um, actually you know, IT teams and executives should be using to really help support their employees as well, to be using the software that they use at work more efficiently, more effectively, and just have a better experience, right, at work by making the software work better for employees. So just finished building that. And again, like one of the things that I love and what I love is thinking about the future and not just thinking about it, but then also building it, which is why I love being a product executive. So I have a PhD in anthropology, 
at one point was going to become an anthropology professor. But instead, I get to do amazing work about thinking about the human future and then building it as a product executive. So love doing that. All right. Thank you so much for being here. Love the enthusiasm. And for everybody listening, we're going to hear from Tatiana and Sumeya about a product-led organization about, you know, Tatiana has been at multiple organizations. So just curious about what really helps create a product-led culture and, and distinguishes that from others and what uh, the people who teams that have worked for her, what they could do to help become a product-led organization. Sumeya, I'm curious for your it's a buzzword that I'm hearing a lot. I'm not necessarily hearing people attach what they think it means. I know we've got, you know, engineering-led organizations and sales-led organizations, but in your mind, what is a product-led organization? Uh, you know, <laughs> I have a confession to make. I actually had to Google this again. I Googled it five years ago or six years ago when I first heard it, and I Googled it again now. And the reason I do that is because, you know, the ethos to, of most successful products managers is to pay attention to the customer, is to want to deliver value to the customer, is to want to create a successful, you know, commercially successful product all things that are really important. And so when you like create this one all-encompassing word, you know, you're building a product. So what does it mean to be product-led versus sales-led versus customer-centric? I have to admit again that, you know, making one choice versus the other that you will stick with forever is not something I would encourage anyone to do. And so... Is product-led the end-all be-all? I don't think that it is. But what is it? <laughs> I guess letting the product and the innovation and the features of the product lead the way or using it as a prioritization mechanism when you're trying to make choices is how I think about product-led. But yeah, I'm excited for us to really talk about the nuance, to talk about the friction point, when does it work, when does it not work, and yeah, get into that. All right. So Tatiana, I love that, Sumeya. Thank you so much for the, the honesty. And I still love that even when it's not something that you're using, a term you're using regularly, you're able to add value right away. Tatiana, in your mind, is there like a solidified definition of a product-led organization? And do you agree that it's sometimes appropriate or do you think it, most organizations should be product-led? So, I mean, I have to say, and I'm not just plugging this because he's my friend and former boss, but Todd Oldison wrote an amazing book called The Product-Led Organization, and I highly recommend that everybody read it. And one of the things that's very clear from that book is that product-led means that, so one of the, that we focus on customer value. Everyone in the organization thinks about customer value first because when you think about what is an organization trying to do, it is trying to build something that customers will value enough that they will pay for it. Okay, so that is the definition of a product. The, the, a product is the thing that customers value enough in order to pay for it. And so you might think about it as a customer-centric organization, but I think one of the reasons why we've gone from the terminology of customer-centric to product-led is because I thought that I think that we started losing this notion of value. And when we talked about customer centricity, this wasn't always the case. I still like the term customer centricity a lot, and I speak about that a lot. But I think that we need to remember that being customer centric doesn't mean doing whatever the customer says they want, 
being customer centric means that we are anticipating what customers will value better than they know themselves, which means that we are building things for them that they may not even be able to articulate right now, but that they will be more than happy and delighted to pay for in the future. And that is really what building a product means and that what being product-led means as an organization. As an organization, everyone in the company is constantly thinking about what are the experiences that we can create as products that customers will love so much that they will want to pay for these things, for these experiences. Now, you know, and the reason why we don't say, some organizations don't say customer-centric is because customer-centric means that we just ask customers what they want and we deliver it to them, which is not the right way to do it. So there's a nuance there. Does that make sense? Beautifully put. Very simple. So essentially, it's taking what a product manager has to do, which is balance the needs of the business, needs of the customer, and develop products that could achieve both of them, both the needs of the business and the customer. So then- Can I interrupt you just quickly? Yeah, please. Well, not exactly. That. Not exactly. Because the needs of the business, so here's the difference, right? When you talk about the needs of the business and the needs of the customer. When you're product-led, you understand that the needs of the business actually are the needs of the customer. The only way the business survives is by producing so much value for the customer that they will be delighted to pay for it. So in fact, there is no tension. If you take a truly product-led approach, there is no need of the business versus need of the customer ever again. There is no bifurcation of those things. That is what being product-led means that you resolve the tension or any friction between those things. You understand that just listening to what a customer says that they want is not actually often doing the best service for the customer because if you do what the customer wants, it often means, you know, they want free stuff. Of course, people want free stuff. Who doesn't want free stuff? So if you give them free stuff, then guess what happens to your business? It goes out of business and then there's no value for the customer. So in fact, being product-led means that there is no balancing between the needs of the business and the needs of the customer because it actually is a perspective which is aligns those two things in their very nature. Does that make sense? Yeah, great clarification. Thank you for making that point there. And I wholeheartedly agree. And I'd love to hear, Samea, based off of what you heard from Tatiana, do you have any follow-up insights or questions or challenges associated that you've observed with trying to get that type of thinking embedded in an organization? Yeah, so I'm thinking within the team, this is definitely something that PMs, you know, we've always wanted to have that balancing act between what's the right thing for the business, what's the right thing for the customer. But if we're not creating that dichotomy of choice and just saying what is the right thing for the customer, I'm still oversimplifying it to being customer-centric. Basically, I'm, what I'm trying to say is there is now one word that I can use for saying everything I just said, which is product being product-led. I'm thinking about the other people on the team as well. So the designer or the UX researcher who has to, you know, advocate for the needs of the customer. Tatiana, in your experience, does everyone on the team have to have that same mindset, the product-led one? Or can you have a mix of mindsets on the team? Ideally, so again, the product-led mindset means that we are building together so much value for the customer that they will be delighted to pay for it. 
And that delighted to pay for it piece is really critical. And so when you're building something for a customer that they say they want, but they wouldn't be delighted to pay for it, maybe we shouldn't be building that. <laughs> you know, and so I do think that it's helpful for everyone in the company to take that mindset, right? What can we do that will delight our customers so much that they will be more than happy to pay for it? Not just things that they say that they want, not and not just things that they, you know, object to because our competitors have it, right? And it's so it's moving from that reactive mode to a really future focused mode that I do think everyone, engineers, designers, product managers, salespeople, marketing people should take that product led approach as opposed to just reacting based on what they hear from a customer in a particular situation. So, for example, salespeople hear the objection, well, you know, your competitor has this and I want like, why don't you have it? Okay, so then they come back to the product manager and they're like, look, our competitor has this, we should build it too. And then the question is, well, how much will customers pay for that versus this other feature that we're building that they would be delighted to pay for? You see, it aligns everyone in the same conversation that it's not just what do you hear our customer wants in any particular moment in time. It aligns everyone around the same criteria that the product that we're building needs to delight the customer more than other things that we can build. And the way that we know that it will delight them more is that they will be willing to pay more for it. And so it gives us all the same language and the same criteria for having those conversations. Yeah, I think it's a set of shared values. Nothing of what they've heard so far conflicts with the general ethos and, you know, the mindset that I personally like to inspire in the team or practice my product management craft, you know, with. It's just a new phrase. <laughs> How long has it been around, Tatiana? When was that book published? Uh, the product-led organization. Let's see. I think I read it in 2021. I don't know when it was published. I'll do some Google and fact check that in a moment. And then, uh, Tatiana, I have a follow-up question. So this is to what Sumeo was saying earlier. Like, is this always appropriate to use? Because I could imagine strategically, sometimes you want to create products like you've got the hooked, right? So you want to get people hooked on it. And then you could start thinking about what will they pay for and turning and monetizing users and customers. So is it always appropriate even at the beginning stages? Is there a tension between the goals of, you know, getting people hooked, getting people used to it, and then monetizing? Or does that fit within product-led as well, just being more forward-looking? So let me let me say about something. I do not like the frameworks in the in the book Hooked, and this is some from someone who worked in social media. I think a lot of social media and a lot I think a lot of that thinking is actually really counter to higher our higher cultural values. Right? Hooked means addicted, and we never want our customers to be addicted or to unconsciously choose to use our products. I don't think that is a very positive goal in terms of what we're doing as human beings. I don't think karmically that will lead to, you know, good outcomes. And I think for an organization, you know, it might be a good short-term strategy, but I think in the long-term, we see that when we create addictive behaviors in our users, by the way, those are not the customers, those are the users, those are the products, right? That you're hooking people into a 
using a product through their unconscious choices, not their conscious choices. And you are then creating an opportunity to have them manufacture more data for you in order to be able to sell that data to your real customers who are, in this case, in many cases, the advertising customers who pay for the product. So I think that there is a lot of value in social media if done correctly, but I don't think the hooked framework is the right way to go about it. Thanks for that clarification. And then so the follow-up is, even if you don't try to get them subconsciously hooked, but just more in a changing their behaviors from what they're doing now to, you know, building awareness for your company, building trust with your company, do you still think of capturing that ability to capture value right at the beginning, even if you're going to be capturing it later, or do you shift in mindsets as the product and the company develops? Does that question make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So I believe that, let's take the Slack example or other companies that led through a, you know, freemium model around product-led growth, right? So I think those are better examples than kind of the the social media framework that Hooked comes out of. But let's just take like, you know, products that, you know, start out as free and, and you can think about these as free trial products, right? But eventually, very early on, right, you want to show that there is value in having people pay for it. If you have a a company where you have no path to your users, you know, even initially upgrading to a paid product, you're probably not building a product. You're building something that is, you know, potentially, you know, just something that people kind of you know, use, but that you don't really understand, you will have no monetary value ever. And so you you need to understand who is going to pay for your product and how much they're going to pay pretty early on if you're really building a product. And so in the case of a lot of the free products that we see now, they're not really free, right? We're paying with them, paying for them as users with our, we're actually the workers, to be quite honest, right? We're generating (laughs) content for free, for these platforms. We are giving them our data for free and we're giving them our attention for free so that they can sell those assets that we are creating to their real customers. And so I do think that there always needs to be an understanding of who is going to pay for your product or service and are you building enough value so that people will be delighted to pay for it. If you're not doing that, you're not actually building a product even from the beginning. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, well put, uh, very clear. So then my next question is, so you're, you're talked a lot about like everybody should have this mindset of creating value so much that customers are delighted to pay for it. Um, can you talk a little bit about what role different people in an organization have to play in building that, that mindset and that collective and shared understanding? I mean, so if this is, yeah, this is, the the so first of all i think that leadership and it starts at the top right the ceo of the organization should have this ethos right that we are all here i mean peter drucker said that the purpose of any company is to create a customer and i think that that is what we were just talking about right and a customer is someone who is so delighted by whatever you're building whatever you're delivering that they are delighted to pay for it. It's the same thing, right? So back to Peter Drucker, that mindset needs to be through the ethos of the organization 
from the board of directors to the CEO and all the way in every function, right? That we are all here to do one thing, which is to create a customer. And in order to create a customer, how does a customer get created? By building something of so much value that 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 person will be delighted to give our organization money for that thing. Because guess what? I think we all agree that we want to get a paycheck, <laughs> right? If if we don't agree, like this is the whole thing about free products, at some point you want to get a paycheck or you expect to get a paycheck. If you expect to get a paycheck, you need to build something that someone will pay for <laughs> so that there's money in the company's bank account to pay you your paycheck. It's just sort of like that type of thinking that everybody in the organization needs to have. And so the engineer's job is not to write great code. And in fact, probably engineers are going to be writing less and less code with ChatGPT and other products like it. Their job is to figure out how to bring the technical components together in such a way that the experience that customers have will delight them more than other competitive products. And therefore, they will be delighted to pay our company versus a competitor company, right? Salespeople need to have the mindset that the story that they're telling about our product will stand out in such a way that customers will want to try our product and they'll be so delighted by it that they'll want to pay our company for it versus another company for the same product or a competitive product or service, right? And so everyone, everyone in the, in the organization needs to have that perspective that being product led is actually the job of all of us because that product is the way that we know customers value what we're building so much that they will pay us and that we, every two weeks, will get a paycheck. Like that's just the nature of business. I definitely agree with that. I I think I would add the complexity that creates a little more of that give and take or hard choices between, let's say, revenue and customers sometimes are all around timeline. So if you're thinking, you know, within a very short timeline or a short time horizon, sometimes you do have to make choices that prioritize one versus the other if you were to boil it down to the most basic decision you have to make as a PM. But if you look at the the longer time horizon, then the shape that all of these decisions take, if you're doing things correctly, is more that product-led decision-making. For example, I think a lot of us uh, in the early days of a product, when we're thinking about what's the most valuable thing for a customer, we might have to build something that brings our product to parity with competitors in the market. Just because it's bread and butter, people expect that basic one-on-one thing to be available before they would even consider you for the next thing. Again, I'm thinking more within an enterprise world. And then after that, so that that parity period, to me, is a pure customer need thing. It's not going to get you anything substantial or additive in terms of revenue. But then when you th- the, the next thing, the thing you actually wanted to build, the reason for this product to begin with, is going to be that, you know, the thing that's going to delight your customer, that's going to create incremental value for everyone. You and the customer. So just wanted to add that sometimes the the time horizon piece is where we break down 
product-led versus some other perspective you might have? Let me give you an example. So in the real world, yeah, I agree with you, Samay. This is the hard challenge of product management. But at the end of the day, in the real world, I found that great product leaders don't see that as a dichotomy. And so let me give you an example. So when we were building Pendo Adopt, we were building a brand new product for an already very you know, saturated market of digital adoption products with a very, very big company that's already the incumbent leader called WalkMe, right? So they are over a thousand person company. You know, they've been on in the market for many years. They have a lot of features in their product. And we wanted to differentiate with an analytics first approach. Now, we did know that we, as you said, there are certain things that customers expected, like being able to build certain types of guides with, you know, in an easy way. And there are other features that we knew would differentiate us, you know, on the on the analytics side. And so in reality, it wasn't like, let's build the parity features first that people expect and then build the analytics. It was understanding within the constraint of the very small, like we had, I think, like 22 engineers. And I mean, we started with just, you know, me and one other product manager on the product side, but and like no designers, I had to hire, hire all the designers. So we were very, very constrained, right, in terms of what we could build, just in terms of resources. But the hard, this is where the art of product management comes in, is to always take this approach of, at the end of the day, we are building something that from day one, we want some customers, not all, we know we're not going to capture all of them, but we need some customers to choose our product over WalkMe and the other competitive products in the market. So what can we do to delight our first customer so much that even in the V1 when we launch, they're not just going to get a bunch of parity features with Wakwi and we're going to, because we also didn't want to undercut on price, right? We were not going to compete on price, which is a strategy by another one of the competitors in the market. So that is the, like, I think that from day one, you need to balance those two things. You need to figure out what is the thing that will get a customer, even just one customer. How do I create my first customer? How do I build a thing that a customer will choose my product over the other products in the market? And then you go to from one customer to five, and then you go from five to 10, and then you go from 10 to your first million dollar customer when you get to 25, right? But that is actually the hard part of product management is to always have that product for led approach from the very beginning. And so speaking of that can you share a little bit, I don't know if that is the biggest challenge or what do you think the biggest challenge for a product manager who is just joining a product-led organization for the first time or their organization is switching and so they have product management experience, they have some mindset. What's the biggest challenge for a product manager in a product-led organization and then how do you recommend they overcome that? I mean, it depends on the organization, depends on the product manager, <laughs> I would say. But I mean, I think that like, so first of all, I do see a lot of product managers very caught in the sort of how do I do a product strategy and what is the template for the this or the that? And that's not and that's kind of missing the point. I think the point is, how do you really get so deep into the needs of customers that you're having whatever your tool set is and whatever, you know, makes sense in your organization, whether it's 
you know, a written document like a PRFAQ or a presentation that tells a beautiful story with lots of, you know, potential screenshots and designs of potential UI, whatever that format is, how do you tell a compelling story of what is the value that we're going to build for customers that is going to help us win their hearts and minds so much that they will start choosing our product. I mean, that's really, it's really that, it's really that challenge. And I think, you know, personally, I think that most product management organizations will be much better set up for success to do this if the product management, you know, the product management sort of team come has at least a few social scientists on the team because really social scientists and storytellers, you know, folks who have real training in how humans behave in the and how to identify the mental models of people in understanding how people interact with the product currently, how they interact with each other if the product is is you know, going into a workplace context or an enterprise context, like having those people there on the product team to really bring that real discipline of social science into the mix and tell that story in a really compelling way is the way for product management teams to be most successful, I think, at this. And I think like one of the things that in technology, at least one of the big challenges is that we don't pay enough attention to the real discipline of the social sciences and the real value and the experience and the knowledge and the frameworks that come from social science into the product management discipline. Too many product managers are actually doing the job of engineers <laughs> because they're like a lot of product managers are coming from engineering fields and they never really have a boss who's truly a social scientist who really teaches them right? How do social scientists think about the human problems? Because that's ultimately what product managers should be doing, right? We should be thinking about the human problems, not the technology problems. This is a very interesting point of view for me, you know, to think through because I usually look at the, the designer on the team, you know, or the UX researcher as the person bringing that balance or in that expertise and knowledge of, of the human condition, if you will, and between them and then the engineers who are bringing in that feasibility and, and solution orientation, you create that balanced team environment that, that has enough of each point of view to get you to the innovation you need. Well, the researchers are bringing uh, a different skill set. So the researchers, there's, there's, in terms of designing research, it's actually very technical, right? So the designing good qualitative research, or actually even quantitative research, good survey design, in mm -hmm. terms of sampling, in terms of the types of questions to ask, and in terms of the actual technology of research itself, is actually just as technical in many ways as engineering. And so you want great researchers to bring that, you know, research technology aspect to the team. But if you think about what is the real challenge, like then I would ask you, if, if it's not product managers who are bringing that human knowledge, right, then what are product managers bringing, right? Because the financial knowledge and the business knowledge, other people in the organization are bringing that. So what are product managers bringing? 
So, <laughs> so if I was to be, you know, precise with the balanced team model that, that basically I like, the PM brings in the business knowledge and the, basically the question of viability of the product and the, you know, the UX or design person brings in the desirability part and then you get the actual build out or the feasibility part from engineering. And but don't you have a lot of ops and, you know, business people, salespeople in an enterprise context and also a huge finance organization that's bringing the viability piece? Yeah, but you have a lot of players who have a say in those things. But ultimately, the product manager is the one who makes the decisions on what problems to approach, what problems to solve for, and then how to take them to market. And all the other functions, finance and marketing, they can have input or they can also have feedback. They're like a support function to the PM, even though they make a lot of the decisions. So they're drivers as well. That's at least how I see them. <laughs> you, Sumeya. So the question is, what is the expertise that the product manager needs to have to make those good decisions? So the product manager, I agree with you, is the person whose judgment we trust to say these are the right things to launch and to bring to market in order to, you know, basically meet our goals. Yeah. And the question is, what is the, like, the specific expert knowledge that the product manager needs to have? Is it reading a financial statement or like the business aspect? Or is it really understanding humans, customers, and what customers will value and pay for, which is the expert, like, what is the expert knowledge that you need to have in order to make that critical judgment? And what I have found in my experience is, Knowledge of humans, knowledge of customers, and knowledge of how people make decisions and will interact with the product is the thing that builds the best product judgment. I can see why that's important. I mean, you need it even within the team to inspire the, the team to, to get the work done, to move forward, yep. to make the right decisions. So if we were to boil it down and organize it by priority, I definitely would, would agree. Number one is the ability to understand humans and inspire them and influence them and see beyond, you know, let's say stated preferences. So you can figure out exactly what they, what they need to, to move forward or to get value. But I think one of the points we, we made earlier, and you actually made it also, it depends on the organization. So certain mm -hmm. organizations will need you to be a little more technically focused. Some will need you to be less. Some will need you to, to be that finance person because there isn't one because you're working directly with the CEO who, who is actually also not one. I guess we're talking about thematic areas, but the reality for each PM, to your point earlier, will differ. Yes, absolutely. It will differ. And what I'm saying is like in, in my experience, at the end of the day, the best product judgment comes from a really deep understanding of human beings. And the discipline that has that deep understanding of human beings is the social sciences. And so we need more social scientists in leadership, top leadership roles in our product organizations. All right. Interesting take. I love the social sciences myself. So love this human-led uh, growth here. 
And so we're time, speaking of humans, we have humans, real humans, I think, in the audience. They might be bots or chat GPT uh, created profiles. But if anybody here in the audience wants to chime in with what they think product-led means to them and have either like a agreement or disagreement from our, our panelists here today, feel free to raise your hand. Or if you have a question for what you could do or uh, any question related to becoming product-led, raise your hand. We'd love to have you up on stage. Or you could message me directly on LinkedIn, and I could ask it anonymously. So here's your chance. Raise your hand if you'd like to join us. And then, Tatiana, I have another question for you. I'm not sure there's any distinction. I'm not. This could be just a dumb question. But becoming product-led versus like this lean product development process and having an MVP, can you talk about whether those are incongruent philosophies or whether a lean product development process can fit within a, a product-led organization? So here's here's the thing about lean. So if you take just like, so the steps in sort of like lean product development, one version of lean product development is build, right? Test, learn, right? So you build first. Okay. So the first, so question, what do you build? <laughs> right? Like, how do you come up with what to build? If step one is build, as opposed to learn about your customers first, how do you know what to build? Because the other, this is the other thing. And then they're like, well, if you built the wrong thing, just pivot. Well, guess what? You might run out of money by that point. <laughs> so like, it's kind of like a weird thing to me to be like, you know, just start building something. And my whole thing is like, well, once you start building something, like before you start building something, you got 360 degrees of freedom about what to build. The very first decision that you make about who is your customer, who are you building for, you greatly limit your degrees of freedom, right? In terms of what you can do later. Then you make another decision about what's the UX and then what are the capabilities and then what are the features. So you, you build something based on a whole bunch of assumptions before you talk to anyone, before you do any research, like, how do you figure out what to build? So like, <laughs> so, so yeah, I believe in building very quickly. Every product that I've, you know, and every project that I've ever been on building products has been very fast iteration, very iterative approach, right? We don't build the Taj Mahal in the V1, as I mentioned before, right? You figure out who was the very first customer who's going to value what you're building, but you always start with the customer. You don't start with the product, building the product first. You always start with understanding the customer first, understanding what is the product that they will love, and then you build that. So that's the thing that I don't understand about Lean Startup. Like, how do you even know what to build if you're not being customer and product-led first? And then so a follow-up question. I think I know where you'll land, but you never know. In the longstanding debate between minimum viable product and minimum lovable product, do you have a stance on that? Or is there even a better kind of concept that we should be debating? So I actually think, again, it's the, the question is who is the first. So the real, the real question here is who's your ideal customer profile for your first customer? And are they going to, is the person, because the, again, the question is who, who needs to love your product, right? Or what does viable mean? Because viable might mean one thing for one group of customers, but that same product may be completely unviable for another group of customers. So I think, again, it, having the conversation around being product-led means defining the ideal customer profile for your V1 and then testing 
whether that V1 actually meets the requirements of thy ideal customer. And the way that you know that it meets their requirements is they're willing to pay for it. So again, you always start with the customer and it doesn't matter if people love it, if they're not willing to pay for it, that means that it's probably the product probably isn't viable because people aren't willing to pay for it. But then you also want to make sure that you are a customer, like you're really focused on making sure you're building a product for someone and not for your internal team or the, whoever had the idea for the product. That's the other thing. I think too many, too many startups build a product for themselves without really going outside and defining who their ideal customer is first. And then they like just engage in this like with navel gazing and then they're surprised that people aren't paying for their product. All right. Thank you so much for weighing in on that. And now we have our first guest. I'll say the first name. You're welcome to give the full intro, but this is recorded and put out as the How to Succeed in Product Management podcast. So I want to preserve your anonymity. But Tony, stage is yours. Uh, you've been on this podcast before. You know the drill. Great to see you. Yeah, good to be here. Thanks for spending time. By the way, I love the conversations. This is one of the first time I have seen folks actually spend time unpacking what they mean by product-led, which is awesome. More, more of these conversations uh, necessary. Just a quick comment, and, and maybe that will lead to more discussion. I find the product-led conversations often obscure, but as soon as, Tatiana, you started talking about building ICPs, and started talking about, well, you know, how do we validate value before we build further is when things start really clicking for me. Hmm. I, I wonder, in your experience, what's the best way to start getting a team start to think like a product-led team without starting these convoluted conversation of philosophies of, you know, yep. product-led versus lead? Because yep. I just find, I'm often trying to find practical ways to get people yep. started to think about it. That's the only way these things work. Okay, my number one tip for this to get started is go in the field with your customers. Actually spend two full days with your ideal customer profile. This is how I align the Salesforce organization around the Lightning Experience redesign because like Salesforce had been trying to redesign its core product experience for five years. And of course, everybody disagreed internally about what it should be. Sales had an opinion, marketing had an opinion, every product team had an opinion. So I said, okay, let's pick four salespeople because we were starting with Sales Cloud. Four salespeople, different size organization, different industries, and we will have four teams observe these four people, these four salespeople for two days, two days straight. And then we're going to come back. And then we were like, holy crap. Now we got real alignment really, really quickly <laughs> because we actually observed the real experiences of our customers. We weren't just talking to them where customers were like, well, Microsoft Dynamics has this. Why don't you have that? But then somebody else talked about somebody who was using whatever, some small CRM. And then they came back with some different insights based on what that customer, but like we actually like lived with customers for two days and we started to see such commonalities in their pain points of the things that they were trying to accomplish and trying to get done. And we understood that we weren't, again, we got out of this reactive mode and more into like the real, real experience, the real lived experience of our customers. And we were like, oh, people are like having, like, what do salespeople do? This was like our big aha moment. What do salespeople do? They spend 90% of their time making phone calls and writing emails. 
right? Not a huge mind-blowing insight, but literally something that we had never directly heard from customers because when you ask them, what do you want? They don't say, I want to be able to write an email, write in Salesforce, doesn't even cross their minds, right? But we saw how much friction they were all experienced in doing what they were doing 90% of their time. So I would say that is the best way to align your team. Go in the field with your customers. I love that. That's one of the things I do as well. Grounding is super important when customers, I, I always call it getting your boots dirty and actually get them dirty. One last thing I'll throw in the head when you guys were talking about minimal viable versus minimal lovable, I'll just throw one thing. It's just, just to make the conversation even more confusing. Maybe I often use minimal sellable to kind of balance between the two to actually also address a little bit what you said, Tatiana, which is like build something that somebody will be willing to pay for it. And I actually really like that because here's the other thing that that teams, product teams often get confused by. They get confused by like, what is the actual sequence of events? So like I had, I often have product managers trying to solve issues of scale before we even have like five customers on the product. And they're like, but this is going to be a big problem once we have, you know, you know, once customers have more than this many objects in the system. And I'm like, step one, sell the product. Step two, get customers using the product. Step three, get them to do the first five things. Step four, now we have problems with scalability. You're three steps too, like too far ahead, right? So Love it. yeah, you have to sell the product first before you solve these other problems. Okay. Sounds like we have the same scars. Cool. I'll retreat. <laughs> but just like, that's the, that's the other really hard thing about product leadership is understanding sequencing, right? Because everybody wants to do it all. We will do it all. We just can't do it all at the same time. So like the sequencing, the art of sequencing is such, like it really is an art in product leadership and trying to explain to everyone why their amazingly brilliant idea that is correct it's just not the right time for it right now. And why in the sequence of events, it needs to come later. So speaking of aligning your team and, and sequencing, I don't know if that's a good segue, but this is my next question regardless. What kind of metrics matter in a product-led organization? What are you pushing people towards? And are those metrics different than other organizations? So one of the things I really encourage you know, teams to do is to align around metrics that matter to your customer, not to not just like shareholder metrics. Again, the shareholder metrics are like step three, right? They're outcome metrics. So you want to move further upstream to really understand what are the metrics that are showing that your our customers are really getting the value that they paid for and more. Like what are the things that our customers really care about? that they will, that really show that they are getting the value that they paid for. And sometimes, you know, that's usage metrics, depending on the type of product that you have. That is sometimes, you know, like what I love in a marketplace, in some marketplace products where you have multiple customers, right? So like Airbnb, right? They have hosts and they have guests, right? And, you know, you can argue that the host team would have one set of metrics and the guest team would have a different set of metrics. But what they did is they laddered up and they said, okay, you know, and then the company metrics would be like revenue or something like that. But what they actually understood was that there was a common metric that actually showed the health, right, of the product experience itself, which was nights booked. Because what do hosts care about? You know, getting, you know, more money, 
right? And the way they get more money is that more of the nights that they have available are booked. And what do guests care about? They care about a great experience. And so if they have a great experience, they will book more nights on the Airbnb platform in the future. And so you kind of ladder up to like a metric that shows that customers are really getting a lot of value out of the products that they're paying for and that it's a leading metric in terms of the health of your business. All right. Thank you. We're almost to concluding thoughts. Before that, I'm just curious if there's any other frameworks, blog posts, or books that you recommend for those interested in learning more about uh, what you've talked about today. Well, I did mention, you know, since this is, we were talking about Todd's book, I just looked it up. It was, it looks like it was published in 2020 and it's actually called, you know, basically driving growth by putting product at the center of your customer experience, right? And then the question is, what do we mean by product? And you'll see that a lot of the frameworks in there are really about understanding customers better. And so, you know, definitely that's one. I do still think, you know, competing against luck and the jobs to be done framework is a spectacular, spectacular framework for really understanding you know, not just what people want, but what will people value, right? Because people value and pay for something that the product is helping them to accomplish. So, so to really understand what are people trying to accomplish, right? And making sure that your product accomplishes that thing and not something else is really critically important because again, people will have lots and lots of comments about how they think the product can be made better. But as a product manager, you really need to understand what is the thing that they will value, that customers will value more than any other feature that you can build. And that's really the jobs to be done framework is really the best one for that. And then of course, there's also the Amazon working backwards, you know, templates and frameworks and the PRFAQ you know, a template, which, you know, I've written a lot about and have linked to also other folks who have written about it. So I do, I do think those are really great places to start. All right. Thank you so much. I'm going to give you a chance for the last concluding thought, but before that, Samea, anything you want to leave the audience with or anything that you hope Tatiana covers in her last concluding thought? Yeah, I think this was a really good and informative conversation. I think we talked in the past about product-led sales or growth, to be specific. And now talking about product-led organizations is basically, it sounds like an extension of that. It's really, to me, it's a compounded concept that has at the core of it the two most important things that I think every successful PM cares about, and that's customer and commercial success. And now we have just one word for that or one, you know, hyphenated word for that, which is great. So we don't have to think about the dichotomy or, you know, uh, create adversarial relationships between the two. I do recognize that there are scenarios where some of what we've been talking about might not work exactly like we framed it. We we haven't had a lot of time, for example, you know, especially since I've been spending the past few months working a lot on enterprise facing products, you know, where you're building a product for your own company that's used by thousands of people within your own company. How do you think about that? What does sales or what uh, not 
not sales. What does a product, a successful product and adoption look like? I know we talked about people paying for things, but you know, you can uh, use different language for that internally when you're uh, talking about uh, the, the products you need to build. So I think a lot of the concepts we talked about today are consistent with what makes product management or a product manager successful at their craft. And I'm excited to read the book, The Product-Led Organization. So thank you, Tatiana, for the recommendation. You're welcome. And Sumeya, we can talk about internal products too, because the thing that people sometimes don't realize who've gone through, who if they haven't actually personally gone through the annual, annual planning process is internal teams do pay for their products that are being built. They just pay for it through the annual planning and budgeting process and not directly. But that, that payment does happen actually in annual planning because teams have to be willing to give up some resources in order to fund other teams to build those internal uh, products for them. So they actually do pay. Even internal product teams get paid and get paid by their customers. It's just that the mechanism is different. Yeah, the dynamics are different too. But I think that the fundamentals of understanding what your customer need, whether you know you have to create a compelling business case, internal one, or you have a sales team you're working with to go externally, to your point, I think it's the same. The mechanics are different. That's true. But I do think that people, if more people, if they realize that if they ask a team to build something like a new technology feature for them, that if they had the mindset that they're going to need to pay for this out of their own budget in some way, I think we would have actually much better conversations, even around internal tooling and internal products. Anyway, this is a whole other this is a whole other topic, but I do I do think this is important because teams when they ask for features need to understand that they need to pay for it in some other way. Maybe that means that they have to reduce their hiring asks for the next year or something else. But in any case, that I do think there's this is an interesting conversation. And one we would love to have you back for. I know we might have to wait till July, but we love having you on this show. I didn't want to cut you off, but I want to be sensitive to your time and I want to give you a voice to conclude. What's the last thing you want to leave the audience with today? So one thing that I really want to make sure everybody understands is that building value for people means that we see them as people. It means that we love our customers we love our product and we're proud of the product that we're building for them, but we also show love and care for our teams internally and help them find the empathy for the people that they're building for, right? That we're all building for and these customers. And at the end of the day, it all comes down to building experiences through the frequency of love and caring for other people and not extraction, right? We want to make sure that we're doing, you know, building things that we're proud of, building things that on our deathbeds, you know, we'll say, hey, I brought more love to the world. I brought my value to the world. And I really spent my time well on planet Earth. And that's the thing that I hope that we can all do. Love it. Tatiana, I love your energy for this. I love how clearly you articulate the frameworks for us and uh, just really appreciate your time here today. Thank you so much. To the audience, thanks for listening. And my concluding thoughts are, you know, I think my biggest takeaway from the conversation is just how important it is to recognize that there is a match between business outcomes and customer outcomes. And that is, you know, the business needs to survive and grow in order to be able to keep adding more value that, that customers are delighted to pay for. Hopefully, Michael, what I took away was what Tatiana meant 
meant for me to take away. But also, one of the things we love here at the University of Washington is building a more inclusive future. And we have the Inclusive Product Management Summit right here in Seattle, May 12th and May 13th. And so I hope many of you will consider coming to Seattle, connecting with some of the best product managers in the business, and uh, learning how to build for a broader set of people. That's my concluding thought. Thank you again, Tatiana. This was eye-opening and really valuable. Thank you, Sumeya. It's always great to have you here. Appreciate what you bring to the table. And thank you, everybody, for listening. We'll be here back next week. Take care, everyone.